Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible, if you would turn to 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter, if you're using a paper Bible, if you start at the end and hang a left about seven books, you'll be there. Um, if you're using an app, uh, the version that we typically use for our teaching time is the ESV version, and there's a free ESV Bible app that you're welcome to grab uh, to follow along. But let's pray, and then we'll open up this book. Uh, Father, we come to you today uh, only because you're merciful. Um, that you're good and you're kind to us in giving us your son so that we could approach you and your word so that we could know you. And and we need you more than we need anything else. Um, So so you and your kindness sent your son to reveal yourself to us, to die for us, and then you gave us this word so that we could know him. So we pray that today as we open your word, you'd help us to hang on every word, help us to to know that these are your words given by your spirit for our nourishment We pray that you'd feed us today and help us see the face of Jesus on every page of of Scripture. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's just read the first two verses of 1 Peter today. These will be the, the only verses that we'll look at. He starts this book by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so this book opened up like letters of their day did by starting with the name of the author, and it tells us here that this was written by Peter, an apostle of Jesus. And according to history, Peter was writing this book somewhere around the year 63 AD, uh, which was shortly before his death, which would have been in 64 or 65 AD. Um, He's writing this from Rome under Nero's leadership, and later on in the year 64, the city of Rome would burn under Nero's leadership. And and there's some evidence that Nero may have actually burned the city down himself because he wanted to build it up better than before, but he had to come up with a scapegoat when the city burned down, so he ended up blaming the church. He ended up blaming the Christians. This has been a repeated pattern throughout history. A major crisis comes on society, and Christians get the blame. Um, The same thing happened in St. Augustine's Day in Rome. When Rome fell to to the Visigoths, the the Christians were blamed for undermining morale there by worshiping this new God, that the whole thing would have been their fault. And you read the New Testament in this light, and you see that a lot of the New Testament is written to, to counteract some of the scapegoating that was always going on. The Christians were being blamed for everything, and so there were false accusations, there was unwarranted hostility, and, and people wrote to defend the church from those accusations. And so because the church was blamed for the burning of Rome, a huge persecution broke out against the Christians in 64 AD. Uh, Christians were being slaughtered left and right. Nero was taking Christians, dipping them in wax, and using them as the candles to light his garden party. And, And then Peter died in that wave of persecution under Nero. Jesus had told him that he would be crucified, and so history says that Peter was crucified, but crucified upside down, not feeling like he was worthy to be crucified in the same way that that Jesus was. So that's the the city that, that Peter was living in shortly before his death. There was a really hot hatred for Christians, and it didn't grow to the level where it was okay for Christians to be persecuted overnight. For a society to, to get to the place where burning Christians seems legitimate, um, there's got to be an awful lot that's stoked in the months and years ahead of that. You know, Hitler wasn't able to do what he did to the Jews in Germany without there being an awful lot of anti-Semitism already in the air to make it seem reasonable to the soldiers and to the populace for, for the th- to do the things that he was doing. And Nero wasn't able to burn Christians for their faith without the city of Rome already teeming with distrust and hatred for Christians and suspicion of the Christians. 
So Peter is living in that city that's soon going to start killing Christians. Um, That's probably a reason that in chapter four he says that he's writing from Babylon. Uh, Babylon was the city in the Old Testament that that killed the people of God. And also in Jewish literature, they, they referred to the city of Rome as Babylon pretty often. And so Peter is living in a hard place. He can sense that things are going to get worse soon. In chapter four, he'll write this. In first chapter four, or first Peter 4.12, he'll say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, when he wrote that, he probably didn't know quite how fiery, literally, his trial would be in Rome, but he could certainly sense that things were heating up, that things were going to get bad for, for the church. So that's where Peter's living. Um, And that's where the church in much of the world was living at the time, at the time when when tensions were growing against the church. And we, reading this in our day, have every reason to hang on every word of this letter. I mean, for one, it's written by Peter, and Peter knew the Lord. He was there for all of the greatest events in, in the gospel's history. He walked on water with Jesus. He multiplied loaves and fishes. He was an eyewitness event of of everything that Jesus did in the Gospels. He went up on the mountain with Jesus and Moses and Elijah showed up and they started glowing. So so this guy was there. And so in reading through 1 Peter, we're reading these words from an eyewitness who was as close to Jesus as you could get. And it's also super important for us to, to hear the message of this book because Peter was a seasoned Christian and pastor. Peter now had been pastoring the church that he planted in Rome in faithful obedience to Jesus for for somewhere around 25 years. Uh, Remember, Peter denied the Lord three times back when Jesus was being crucified, but then there was a dramatic scene. Jesus had resurrected, and he came to meet with his disciples on the beach. And it was in that scene that Jesus restored Peter and called him to go out and pastor the, the church of God. And so in John 21, verse 15, Jesus is resurrected. They're on the beach, and it says, when they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus told Peter that the rest of his life, a life of love for Christ, would be be demonstrated by Peter's feeding Christ's sheep. He would go out from here to teach the word, he would be a faithful pastor in the early church, and he would be so faithfully committed to Christ that at the end of his life, he was going to be crucified for his faith. And now at this time, at the time of writing of 1 Peter, it's been about 30 years since that moment on the beach, Jesus has ascended into heaven, and Peter's been faithful. He's been feeding the sheep of Christ. Now, he was imperfect. You see in the book of Acts that he struggled with legalism. He struggled with pleasing people. He had to be rebuked for some of his sins. The Bible doesn't present him as a flawless guy at all. But here you see him in his early 60s in this tense city of Rome, faithfully walking with Jesus for decades and, and still faithfully pastoring the sheep that Jesus has given him to pastor. He's doing this whole thing with no hope that the tension will ever let up. 
Because Jesus told him at the end of his life he was going to be crucified. So that had to be just a cloud that hung over everything he went through in his life. That even the good times, he had to know, I know where this is going. I know that I'm going to a cross. But you don't see Peter getting more and more bitter. You don't see him getting angry. You actually see the Peter who wrote this book far more warm, far more pastoral, far more patient and caring than he was in his younger days in, in the gospel stories. So something was going on in his heart to, to make him confident in Jesus. And that even though he had this weight that, that things were going to go badly, even though he knew that the future wasn't going to get better for him, he was still clinging to Jesus with hope and joy. And most of us, and we can walk through hard times if we know that things will get better later. You know, if you're going through college, you might be going through a hard time with, with school, with finances, but you hope that someday you'll be able to get a job and you'll be able to, to pay for all this. And you're, the hard work that you're putting in now is to get you a different life in the future so you're able to endure the hard times now. I know when we bought uh, our previous house, I was in youth ministry. We, we kind of bought the house we could afford. We just had our third kid. And this was a house that was absolutely terrible. Like it was in total disarray. It wasn't a crime scene, but it looked like one. Like there were smashed windows. There was blood, um, long story. There was a, a foot of water in the basement. Like this place was just absolutely nasty. I couldn't believe that my wife went for it. But we, we bought the house and we moved in knowing that it was going to get better. And we were able to endure like the squalor for a while because we were making the improvements. And little by little, we were, we were turning it into a house that we liked living in. And because the future looked brighter, we could endure an awful lot. But Peter never had the future in this life looking brighter for him. But still he was growing in his walk with Christ. He knew that his life would end with him being tortured and killed, that hung as a shadow over everything that he went through. But he had what he calls a living hope in 1 Peter 1.3. He knew that his life on this earth would be filled with suffering and hard times and that his end would be painful, but he looked forward to the resurrection and he anchored his hope there. And how much would we benefit to learn from a guy like that? You're someone who goes so all in on his future resurrection from the dead that he can endure trials and losses and grow not colder, but warmer in his walk with Jesus while he's here. And how much, if we started to, to learn what he learned of Jesus, how much would that diminish so much of the anxiety and the frenzy in, the, in this life? Where we always feel like we have to get all of the experiences in this life because you only live once. We have to reach all of our goals. We have to get it all in. It, it has to happen because we only have so many years. And as we age, we feel more and more anxious that I'm not doing what I expected to do. How much would that be diminished if we went all in on the resurrection of the dead, knowing that one day we will rise, we will see the face of Jesus, we'll be with him forever. And so Peter's somebody to learn from. Someone whose faith was always under pressure, whose future always looked bleak, but was bursting with joy from, from knowing and clinging to Christ for decades. And on top of that, now that, that Peter's in his 60s, it's wise for us to learn from him because it's wise for many of us who are younger than 60 especially to learn from people who have followed Jesus for a long time who are older than us. I think this is a deficiency in our culture where our culture is very youth-oriented, um, where the influencers in our culture, influencers on YouTube, are people in their teens and 20s. And, and after your 20s, you just kind of start to lose influence in our culture. Where biblically, people gained wisdom with time. That we can learn from anyone. We can even learn from children in, in the body of Christ. But Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory, and it's gained in a righteous life. It's good for us to learn from people who are older 
and who have gone before. You know, I know for me, like even at the time that we planted Grace Road, I was 30, and most of the people that I was learning from were in their 30s. Uh, most of the pastors were, were very young. They were, they were kind of the young influencers within the body of Christ. And now many of them have fallen. They've fallen through sin and scandal. They, they haven't persevered in their walks with Christ. Some of them have turned from Christ altogether. They just hadn't been tested yet. And, and while it's good for us to, to learn wisdom wherever we can learn it and learn from whoever we can in the body of Christ, it's so much wiser to learn from the aged and the wise because they've been tested. They've been here before. They already hiked on this trail, and so it's wise for us to follow them through the wilderness and to not think that all of the learning in the church should be coming from the people who are in their 20s and 30s. Man, we need to learn from these people who are in their 60s and 70s and have been there and have even fallen and had scars like Peter did but have been restored by Jesus. We need to hear from people like that. So we can learn from Peter, who's been through his young days, who said things he regretted, who's been on the wrong side of issues and had to be confronted by Jesus, confronted by the church. But after all of it, with all the scars, with all the baggage, at the end of his life, he's still saying what he says in 1 Peter 5:11: to him be dominion forever and ever. He's still clinging to Christ in a world that's full of hostility toward Christianity. So we want to learn from him because he's a seasoned Christian. He's a seasoned pastor, but he's also not just any pastor. He's an apostle of Jesus, according to verse 1. And an apostle is not just an ordinary minister. Uh, the Greek word apostolos means sent one. So that can just mean someone who was sent to carry out a message in a generic sense. And so in that sense, like all Christians are little a apostles. But the office of apostle, like kind of capital A apostle, was only held by these guys that Jesus specifically commissioned to be apostles. We know that because to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus. It actually happened where, where one guy goes down, Judas goes down, and they have to replace him with another apostle. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 22, one of the requirements that they held out was he had to have met with the resurrected Jesus. We can't have someone be an apostle who didn't meet Jesus face to face. Also on top of that, the authority of apostles is confirmed with miraculous work. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, there's a guy who's laying and he's paralyzed and he's begging alms. And this happens, Acts 3, 6, it says, But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the guy does. He gets up and he walks and he leaps and he praises God. And so, so Peter had a level of authority that we don't have. We can pray and ask God to heal, and sometimes God answers those prayers and does heal, but for Peter, there were times where they just knew he healed so much that they would lay the paralyzed out on mats and cots, hoping that his shadow would fall on them and heal them as he walked by. So his authority was confirmed by, by a level of miraculous works that, that most of us don't see in our lives. And there are a lot of good reasons for us to believe that there are no more apostles today. That the apostles were just the, those guys who, who followed Jesus at the beginning. Um, for one is that you did have to see Jesus to be an apostle. Um, in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 22, that was a requirement. But then um, the apostle Paul, who saw Jesus face to face, said this. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? So Paul was an apostle because he saw the Lord. He saw him face to face, and we don't see him face to face in the same way. Um, on top of that, Paul said that he was the last of the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, it says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then the third reason to believe that apostles no longer exist is that once that first generation of apostles like John and Paul, once they died off, the next generation of church leaders didn't talk like they were just sort of following in their footsteps and taking over and, and becoming the next generation of apostles. They actually talked like something was lost. Um, there was a guy named Ignatius who actually learned from the apostle John. So, so John was, you know, inner circle with Jesus, church 1.0, first generation of the church. And then Ignatius takes over when John dies. And when he's talking about what John was like and what he was like, he said, not as Peter and Paul did, do I command you. They were apostles but I am a convict. So even that first generation of church leaders after the apostles died off came along and they said, I'm not an apostle. I don't have the authority that they have. And so these apostles were unique. They, they took the place of the Old Testament prophets who would go places and say, thus saith the Lord, and you didn't argue with them because it was a message from God. In the New Testament, in the same way, the apostles would go places, speak the word of the Lord. Uh, what they wrote is our New Testament, and that is the word of God for us. And they aren't a group of people who've been replaced as apostles. I mean, none of us can say what I have to say is as much inspired as the Bible is. And I think sometimes things can go really wrong when people claim to be apostles today. Sometimes we'll hear about someone who claims to be an apostle who might be really gifted at teaching, might even be a legitimately gifted pastor, but then they start saying something that's completely off the wall and people don't want to say, I disagree, because after all, he's an apostle. He's God's man. He's so close to God, he knows better than I do, and people don't want to push back on that. And that can be really dangerous to put that kind of authority in a person who shouldn't have it. I mean, God has called pastors and teachers, but they don't have the authority of an apostle. We actually check the words they say by the words of the apostles that we have in the New Testament. So just be cautious if you're in circles where people are claiming to be apostles. It could be that they just define apostle differently, which isn't as big of a deal. Um, they might not be claiming to have that level of authority and, and you just have to kind of discern what they mean by what they're saying. But pretty often, if someone is claiming to be an apostle, they can be abusing authority. They can be claiming more for themselves than anybody has today because Paul was the last of the apostles. We don't have the authority that, that people like, like Peter had. So it's important to learn from him. It's important to learn because he knew the Lord. He was seasoned and tested. He was an apostle. And another reason that it's good to learn from him is that he's writing to people just like us to explain how to live in a world that's hostile to the faith. Again, he opens up the letter in verse 1 by saying, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he sends this letter to be circulated among churches in what is modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor. And he writes to people that he calls the elect exiles of the dispersion. And this is absolutely huge for us to understand this book of 1 Peter and for us to understand how to live in, in the world that we live in. The, the dispersion, or the diaspora, originally referred to what happened in 586 B.C. when Babylon came in and they, they sacked the, the kingdom of Judah and they carried off the Jews into to foreign lands where they would live, often as slaves. Um, the, the Jews were dispersed from their homeland. They lost their home and they got scattered throughout the world. But then when they went into those other countries all around the world, they, they started to form together in communities. And that's actually where synagogues started to form. Uh, you read through the Old Testament and God commands his people like to build the tabernacle 
and then after the tabernacle, he commands them to build the temple, and, and those are the places where sacrifices are offered, where God is worshiped, where the word is taught, but there's no command in the Old Testament for anyone to build synagogues. But then you get to the New Testament, and synagogues are in every town. They're, they're like a central part in the life and ministry of Jesus, of, of everybody in the New Testament. There were synagogues everywhere. And, and the place that they came from was that the Jews had been carried off into exile. They were dispersed. And when they went into foreign countries, they wanted to, to be able to still have their Jewish community. They wanted to still be able to gather and learn the word of God. They wanted to be able to preserve their culture and their language and the word of God. They, they wanted to preserve their ways. And so any town where there were 10 Jewish families, they would form a little synagogue. They would hire a rabbi. He would teach. They would gather together regularly. And, and they were able to preserve their, their ways of walking with God in all of these foreign countries all around the world. Now, something was missing. They didn't have a priest there. They couldn't offer sacrifices there. They all had a sense that this world is not our home, that their home was, was Jerusalem. But they were still able to maintain distinctions as, as Jews of the dispersion. And God gave some commands for them. Um, like he, he told them to do this. This is Jeremiah 29, verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So they were dispersed into all these places and even though they had no power, even though they weren't home, even though they were longing for something better in the day when they could go back to their homeland, God commanded them to not be diminished by all that. He said, go there, be fruitful, multiply, raise families, start businesses, work for the good of the city, even though it's not your city, even though that city is hostile to you, even though you don't own the place, even though you can't vote there, even though you don't have power there, work for their good, pray for their good, because when good happens to that city that you live in, that good will come to you too. And so for 600 years of Jewish history before the New Testament was written, that was the norm. The Jews were in varying degrees of exile all around the world. And sometimes even in their homeland, they were ruled over by a foreign power. In some of those places, the Jews grew to great prominence. Like in Alexandria, Egypt, 40% of the population became Jewish. Um, it was all centered around life in the synagogues. In other places, they were a, a very small minority, not empowered, always thought of as kind of weird by the culture around them but they were able to maintain community and joy and distinction. But here in 1 Peter, Peter refers to, to these Christians who are primarily Gentile as elect exiles of the dispersion. These aren't Jewish people that he's mostly writing to. Um, he, he's, there are certainly Jews within the churches that he's communicating with, but there are a lot of Gentiles, probably majority Gentiles in these churches in Turkey which means that Christians throughout the world and throughout history are supposed to identify with those elect exiles of the dispersion. We're supposed to see ourselves in this world as chosen exiles. So what does that mean? Well, for one, that means that, that we know that the world is not our home yet. Now, Jesus did teach that the meek will inherit the earth, 
He did teach that we will reign. Um, when, you, when you read kind of the end of the story in the Bible, you see Jesus coming and reigning with his saints reigning with him. We do get to reign over the earth someday. In one sense, it is already ours. But in another sense, it isn't yet. And the world is ours because it belongs to our Father. But right now, we are just kind of elect exiles of the dispersion. We're sojourners and we're foreigners here while we wait for the day when history has played itself out according to God's plan and the kingdoms of this world are the kingdom of our God and Christ. So we, we live with a sense that this world isn't our home yet. And also if we're going to see ourselves as elect exiles, that means that we should learn to be comfortable being thought of as outsiders here. We can be, accept being thought of as very unique and strange. It probably will happen that we'll often be blamed for the problems in society. We'll be misunderstood. We'll be like people from a foreign land whose values and customs and traditions are really different than all the people around us. And then as a result, we can expect that we'll often be disliked and distrusted by the world around us. St. Augustine wrote that this is the way it always is. In his book, The City of God, where he was trying to describe why, why Rome was falling and it wasn't the Christian's fault, and, and trying to explain to Christians why it was that life was going so badly, he says, so it falls out that in this world, in evil days like these, the church walks onward like a wayfarer stricken by the world's hostility, but comforted by the mercy of God. Nor does this state of affairs date only from the days of Christ and his apostles' presence on earth. It was never any different from the days when the first just man, Abel, was slain by his ungodly brother. So shall it be until this world is no more. So we can expect to not be widely accepted. And also because we know that we're going to be very different in this world that we live in, that means that we should stop having our view of the Christian, shape, or the Christian faith shaped primarily by the culture. And this is a trap we often fall into. We fall into the trap of allowing the culture around us to tell us what's right and wrong with the Bible, where Christians are people who should be allowing the Bible to tell us what's right and wrong with, with the culture. Now that means that if we do that, we're, we're certainly not gonna fit in. We won't fit in in the prevailing culture. We will live like exiles. Of course we won't fit. But this also frees us a little bit because it means that we can give up the quest to make Christianity acceptable to people who reject it in the wider culture. And we bring the good news of the gospel to them. We love them and serve them and speak truth to them. And many will come to believe. Um, God said, multiply there, don't decrease. That will certainly happen. But we can stop trying to make the faith cool to those who don't embrace it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So he says, we're going to go places, and we are going to smell like Jesus, and there are going to be people who like that aroma, who like that smell. There will be people who don't like that smell, but we don't change the smell. We're going to smell a certain way, and, and when we smell that way in the world, there will be those who love that aroma and are drawn to Christ and those who reject it. But the last thing we should do is try to twist the faith to fit the prevailing culture. Now, this means that we also have to try to find ways to thrive in a world that doesn't understand and often rejects our beliefs. 
In Jeremiah, he told those exiles to build houses, plant farms, raise families. And even if the doors of culture start to close to you and you can't be elite anymore, you can still work hard. You can still raise families. You can still build community. You can still be, build churches. You can still be productive and generous and godly. You can still seek the good of the communities where we live, even if we are treated like exiles there. Now, none of this means that we disengage with the world. It just means that we engage with the world differently if we were trying to, than if we were trying to hang on to like power and status. You know, at times there will be people among us who do rise to powerful positions. I mean, that certainly happened in the exile. You see like Daniel, for example, in Babylon, rising all the way to the top through godliness and wisdom and the blessing of God. But when he rose to the top while in exile, he never compromised the truth. He was unwilling to compromise what was true or good, even if it meant that he was going to be thrown into a lion's den, even if it meant that his boys were going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. He, they, they were faithful in that place. And so if we're going to be elect exiles, we, we can expect that we won't always feel like we fit, like the world won't always feel like home. It'll also mean that at times we'll suffer. We'll talk about that more in the months ahead because this book says a lot about being a Christian and suffering. And for many of us, this will be a little bit of a struggle to learn a new way of thinking, a way of thinking of ourselves, not as the, the powerful and prominent ones, but as the elect exiles and strangers and outsiders, as opposed to the ones who are in control of everything. So something will feel like it's lost if we think this way. I'm sure when, when these Jews were carried away from their homes into Babylon, they, there was a major sense of loss. It was a new day when, when they became the minorities in other countries. There, there was loss for them, but they were blessings to all nations. And the reason was because they weren't just exiles, they were chosen exiles. Listen to Isaiah 41 in verse 8. He says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. So they were exiles, but they were chosen by God. They were made friends of God. They were made servants of God. They had nothing to be afraid of because God was with them. And the good news is that the Bible says the same thing about us. Again, verse 1 here, he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. We're not just exiles of the dispersion, we're elect exiles. And elect means chosen. When we, when we vote in an election, when we elect someone, we're, we're choosing the best candidate, or often we're choosing like the least terrible candidate. Like we're, we're making a choice based on, based on who we want to be there. We're, we're choosing someone. And if we are Christians, then we can know with confidence that God has elected or chosen us. In fact, 23 times in the New Testament, Christians are called the eclectos, the elect, the, the chosen. But the difference is that when God chooses us, it's not because of our virtue. It's not like he looks at us and says, okay, who's good? I want to choose that guy. Or who's the least terrible? I want to choose that person. It's not how any of it works because then we would have something to boast about. It's actually kind of a mystery how, how God chooses who he chooses but if we have come to believe in Christ, we've come to believe because God chose to give us faith. And yes, we're exiles here, but we are chosen ones. 
and the truth that we're chosen has become like just one of the greatest comforts that there is for me. And to, to believe that we are Christians because God chose us first is just a, such an anchoring belief. You know, when I was younger, I used to love that doctrine because it was fun to like debate about. Like I remember being in the dorms in Bible college and debating predestination versus free will and choosing team predestination and loving to win those debates because I like to argue and especially when I'm right. And so it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, I'm really fun to be married to, too. But, um, and so it was, it was tons and tons of fun. But man, now this has become not just the kind of thing that is fun to win a debate about, but an anchor. In fact, over the, over the last couple decades, I, it's become something that I don't even feel much of a need to argue about, but it's become one of the greatest comforts in my whole walk with Jesus. I don't think God revealed these things to us mainly so that we could win a debate with other people, but he revealed them to us mainly so that we could win a debate with our hearts. Because our hearts like to believe that when we see the world around us opposing us, our hearts like to believe that the future's bleak. They like to believe that the walls are closing in on us. We gravitate toward believing that we have no hope. But if we were chosen by God, then we can know that the future is good eventually. In fact, look what it says about our election. Verse two, it says that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, some people have taken this to mean that when God was choosing who he would save, he kind of looked down the hallway of time and he, he saw who would believe. And then because they believed, God made his choice in response to our choices and decided that he would save us. But that doesn't seem to fit with, with what the rest of the scripture says about our nature. You know, Romans chapter three says there is no one who seeks God. And so if God was just waiting around for us to choose him, there would be no takers. So foreknowledge can have another meaning and in the more biblical meaning is that God knew us beforehand. And to know someone in scripture is not just to have an awareness of their existence and their choices, but it was having an intimate love for a person. It's even used to describe how Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant. So, so to know someone in a biblical sense is to be intimately acquainted with them. And to foreknow a person is to know them well beforehand and is to forelove them. So Christians are people that before God created the world, he knew. He knew and he loved and he cared for us. Scripture says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And it's an anchoring truth. Ephesians chapter one, verse three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Before the foundation of the world, he looked at us and loved us and chose us. And if our belonging to Jesus originated with God's choice of us before the foundation of the world, then that is a solid thing. It's a sure thing. And we can know that nothing will keep us from the ultimate good in the end. He foreknew us, he chose us, and of course he's going to keep us. We were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Also in verse two, he says that we were elect in the sanctification of the spirit. 
In these verses, we have all three persons of the Trinity mentioned, where, where we're foreknown by the Father, we're sanctified in the Spirit, we're chosen for obedience to Jesus. And he says here that we are being sanctified in the Spirit. Sanctified means set aside for his use. That the, the Spirit is working to set us aside for God's use. Christians are people who have already been set aside for his use, and we grow in that sanctification throughout our lives. And so that means that we can expect that regardless of how hard things get here, how much pressure there is from the outside, we can grow in our joy in the Lord. We can grow in our peace. We can grow in our knowledge of his grace. We can grow in our Christian relationships. We can grow in our humility and our repentance and confession. There, there will always be room for Christians to be growing. And he also says we're elect for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. He doesn't say that we're chosen because of our obedience to Jesus. He says we are chosen for obedience to Jesus. That God wants us to be a people who obey Jesus, who have Jesus as our Lord, who have Jesus ruling over us, who make decisions because of what Jesus says. And it says when we were chosen for the sprinkling with his blood, which, which might be referring to just the daily cleansing and the daily power for obedience that comes from looking to the cross of Jesus. And so he wants us to know in this world that is quaking, in this world that's about to burn, how sure the thing is that we have in Jesus. If from eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit were coordinating their efforts to redeem us and save us and choose us and draw us and make us obedient and set us aside, if we have all three persons of the Godhead on our behalf working for our good, then even when we feel like exiles, we never have to feel like we're without God. We never have to feel like there's no future. We never have to believe that the walls are really closing in on us. And then as a church, as exiles, we can become a really distinct community. A kind of a strange place where it's like pain and hope live in the same body. Where we can lose the whole world but know that we've gained our souls. Where we can go out into the world and feel totally out of place when we go to school feel total, totally out of place on campus, feel totally out of place in any political party, at the job, but still be increasingly growing in joy and warmth through the sanctification of the Spirit and having real community with one another. Scripture puts it better. It says that we can be a people in 2 Corinthians 4 where we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed, Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being, over, being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's the, the life that we're called to. That's the kind of community that we're called to. And if you don't believe these things yet, I want to invite you to that life. And to become a Christian is a very unique thing. It's very strange, even among world religions, where, where for the most part, the religions of the world say that if you want to get to God, if you want to get to heaven, if you want to get to enlightenment, if you want to get to nirvana, whatever it is, there's something that you need to do. 
You need to achieve something morally. You need to achieve a certain inner peace, a certain inner state. Whatever it is, you have to, you have to do something to get yourself to that place where you're enlightened or where you know God. But Christianity is this strange faith. It says that that's not how we get to God at all. In fact, sometimes those efforts can even make us worse because we can achieve morally and then we, when we get to the top, we start to get pretty smug and we start to look down on all the other people that haven't achieved morally. Christianity says that there's nothing we can do to achieve our way to God, that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all deserve his wrath. We all deserve hell. We deserve punishment. And even if we did try, there's nothing we could do to clean up for the past. We're, we're stained. We're polluted. We, we've fallen too far short. But Christianity says that God came to us. That he came to us in Christ and he perfectly obeyed the law of God. He was the one perfect, perfectly righteous one. But then when he went to the cross, he paid the price for our sin. He endured the punishment that we deserve. He died for us there and was buried and rose again. And scripture says that the way we receive that gift of eternal life and forgiveness is not by doing, it's not by morals, it's not by joining this church or any other church. It's by coming to an end of ourselves, realizing we can't save ourselves, and then trusting what Jesus has done for us. We trust in him. We believe by faith that when he died on the cross, he did that for us. If we're going to turn to him, we have to be turning from everything else. So we turn from other gods, from other ultimates. We turn from sin. We turn from selfishness. We turn from unbelief. And we turn and hang our hope and our trust on Jesus. And if we trust in him and him alone for our forgiveness and salvation, he promises to forgive us, to cleanse us, to come in, to dwell with us, to give us his spirit, to set us aside and sanctify us. And he promises us a good future in the resurrection. It'll be hard for a while. We'll live as exiles here. We'll feel like we don't fit in in most circles. But in all of it, we'll have God with us working through us, growing us, giving us joy, giving us a real community that's looking more and more like Jesus. So if you'd like to turn and believe in him today, that, that's what's offered to you. That kind of forgiveness, that kind of joy, and yes, hard times, but a connection with your maker that you were made for. So cry out to him, and, and he promises of all those who come to him, he won't lose one. Christians, let's pray. Father, your greatest gift to us is your son. He's our peace and our salvation. He's our redeemer, our substitute. He stooped low to raise us up. He was born as a person to become like us, that we might become like him. He worked out a perfect righteousness that was given to us so that we could draw near to you. When we couldn't rise to him, he drew us close. He lifted us to himself. He defeated our enemy. He won our battle, and he purchased our eternal peace with you. And God, we thank you for this good news of, of great joy. But in light of it, we have to confess that we often live without joy in our salvation. When the world gets hard, we, it, it comes to the surface. We often live for your gifts without lifting our hearts to worship you, who's the giver of all the good things. 
despite this goodness to us, we, we continually sell out our hearts. Our attention and our admiration are easily bought for a moment of pleasure and escape. We just keep going back to worshiping ourselves. So God, forgive us. We desire to please you, but we're weak and we're sinful. We're not able to stand in obedience unless you do sanctify us and lift us up. So forgive us for the sin that remains in us. Even though it frightens and troubles us, you've defeated it completely. You give us perfect peace in Christ. And thank you that we're forever united to him. Thank you that his obedience is counted as our obedience. Thank you that your delight in him transfers to us. So enlarge our hearts to celebrate the good news of great joy that this gospel is. Settle our hope and our peace in the love of Christ. And make his reign the, the ground of our peace. Help us to believe these things. Help us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection that we one day will have. So that when we feel like exiles here, when we feel lost here, can know that not all is lost. In fact, if we wait long enough, everything is gained. So forgive us for our unbelief and help us to believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name.